We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 again this morning. And I want to remind you here that this is the letter which Paul uh, is writing here to continue his exhortation to the Corinthian church. There may have been as many as four letters written to that church. And this would be the last of the four. But Paul here is writing to this church to continue to adhere to the principles that he taught them in the beginning when the Lord brought him to Corinth in the, in, uh, in the very beginning, which is recorded there in the book of Acts. And these folks had become followers of Jesus Christ. But the concern here of the apostle is that they had not been consistent in that faith. And they had compromised important practices and entertained false teachers, the Judaizers. In fact, that's the last and most discouraging thing to Paul was their opposition to he and his, he and his ministry. Their compromises, but the, and I think that part of the reason why that uh, the Judaizers were able to gain a foothold is due to the compromises of the, of the uh, Corinthian believers themselves in the church, and particularly in their uh, the matters of Christian liberty and love, or so-called love. This allowed for a toleration of, of a very wicked evil that was not even tolerated among their pagan neighbors. But they boasted, bragged about their tolerance. And Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You let a little sin in, and it isn't long before that little sin has permeated everything. We cannot tolerate even a little leaven. So these failures then led to disruption and division. Said I hear by the report of Chloe, that there are divisions among you. Some say I'm of Paul. Some say I'm of Apollos. Some say I am of Christ. Peter. Some said I'm of Peter. And some said, well, we're, we, we're followers of Christ. So four, four factions in the church there. And that should not have been because the, the, the four are not divided. Peter... Apollos and uh, Paul were all servants of Jesus Christ. But it, was, it had produced some serious problems. And he sought to deal with these in his first epistle, which I think is the, our first letter. And then he, was, he sent uh, Titus uh, to, to check on the situation, and, then, and he found himself uh, beside himself, really, with with concern that he was not able to communicate with Titus and find out how the Corinthians had received his letter. But he does. And very happy that they had received the correction in a proper spirit. Now Paul sought to get them to disassociate with the false teachers, the Judaizers, who were worming their way into the church. To gain influence... And uh, they, these false teachers sought to overthrow Paul and 
Paul's influence here by destroying his character and his ministry. But Paul reminded them in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, we are known to God. What we are, excuse me, what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're an open book, Paul says. We're not hiding anything. And you that ought to be obvious to you. So his he attempts then to set the record straight. And I we, we have to understand he's Paul here is not bragging on himself. He's laying out some I think important truths. And but he what he does in some respects is he borrows from his enemy's tactics. And that the use of the word boast. Really to the word boast means to glory in something. It's not necessarily a negative thing, but the Lord wants us not to glory in anything but himself. But when we glory in what our what we are or what our accomplishments are or so forth, that's sinful. And sadly, that that really characterizes an awful lot of God's servants is their focus upon them, themselves rather than upon their Savior. So Paul uses that term, but I think he's doing so kind of uh, putting it back into their face, so to speak. So in the fifth, in the twelfth verse of that fifth chapter of Second Corinthians, we looked at that says, we are not commending ourselves uh, uh, to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. You're going to brag about something? And that's really what it, the idea is, bragging. Who do we want to brag about? We want to brag about the Lord, how good He is to us. But He said, if, 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 uh, if you want to brag about something, brag about this that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. Get your priorities corrected and brag about what needs to be bragged about. So in effect here, he was telling the church that what motivated them to brag was not really themselves, but the Lord. And... Uh, and uh, so Paul here sought to enable the Corinthian believers to overcome the criticisms about him and to defend their willingness to listen to him as he was God's servant. And oftentimes this is how Satan works. He seeks to discredit the man of God so that he can get them distracted to something else. And that was the tactic. And Paul said that you can't. Don't do that. Don't do that. This observation here is, I think, proven by the word appeal there that we find in verse uh, 20 of this chapter, uh, night of the fifth chapter. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Uh, I really think a better translation here would be plea. This is a legal term. 
This is what this is what lawyers do before the court. They argue the case and plea for a ruling. And technically, this is what it's all about. God says he's doing this pleading through his servants, the ambassadors. He's making his plea through the apostles. And the noun here is the noun form. This is the verb form, para kaleo. In fact, it's actually two words. Para means alongside or with. Kaleo means to call. To come alongside and call. Uh, para kaleo. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the noun form is used, translated in the King James Version, comforter, and it's used of the Holy Spirit of God. In the uh, English Standard Version, it's translated helper. And in uh, John 14, verse 7, John wrote, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the pleader, if you please, the advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And what does he do? The Holy Spirit, even in that passage, says he's going to take the things that I have given to you and he's going to help you understand them and he's going to help you apply them in so many words. So that's what we have here. The Holy Spirit is a pleader, a parakletos if in the translated uh, in the translation there. So he comes alongside the believer to enable the believer to walk in true biblical uh, a, a true biblical walk. So what is the plea here? That's the question. Paul says, uh, working together with him, this is verse 1 of chapter 6, we plea to you, appeal. See, here's the translation of the word appeal again. But it's we plead uh, for you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? Now, the whole argument that's laid out in this chapter is summed up in the first verse of the seventh chapter. Since we have these promises, and the promises relate to the scriptures which he's quoted here from the Old Testament, from from Isaiah particularly, and also from Leviticus, says, since we have these promises, what is the promise? The promise is, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to walk among you and you're, I'm going to be a father to you and you're going to be my children. Wow, what a promise. And since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit and bring holiness to to completion in the fear of the Lord. Or I, I here again, I like the King James, perfect or perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the plea is, follow me 
in doing what God wants you to do because God's speaking to you through me and he is giving you a great and precious promise that he wants to be your God, that he wants to live among you and walk among you. And this is what you need to, to do because of that promise. So we're, we're talking here about perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And it, it really comes out of also uh, Hebrews there, uh, exhorts in the same way there in, in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and verse number 14, we read, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Same, the same emphasis. True believers are to be holy, happy, willing, submissive, and obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So the fifth chapter closed with this explanation for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that and here's a purpose clause we might become the righteousness of god in him now there, there's two things here about this righteousness that we need to understand first of all is i'm already fully accepted of god God is not looking at my faults and my failures right now at all. I mean, he's, he sees them as a father sees them and wants to correct them. But with legally and with respect to my acceptance before God, I am already righteous. I am robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus took my sins on him on the cross and he paid the penalty, the wrath, of God that was due to me was received by Jesus in my place and I am forgiven of all my sins. But then that's not quite enough. What God does then is He turns around and He gives to me the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that I can be found acceptable to God. When God looks at me, He doesn't see me. He sees Jesus and welcomes me as if I were Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. There was no wrong, no sin. Wow. But see, there's another aspect of it that that's Paul is addressing here. I may be perfectly acceptable to God, but I am not perfectly acceptable yet in myself. In myself. In the robes of, of Jesus Christ I am, but not in myself. What God wants is He wants to take me where I am and make me perfect like Jesus Christ. So, that, so notice that, that we may be that we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's what Paul's talking about here. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're fully acceptable to God because He paid your sin debt and He provided for you a perfect righteousness. 
but that's not the end. Why did he leave us here? He could have taken us right on to glory. No, he left us here because he wants us to be a testimony, first of all, a light in the world. But second of all, he wants us to go through a period of growth and grace, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And this is a daily process that's only going to end when we either when we die or when Jesus comes back again. And I hope he's coming back pretty soon. So the first point here is the plea. Paul is giving a passionate plea here in, uh, in the 20th verse here of that 5th chapter. We also, the idea that's implied here, we also, God, God's doing this, but we also do this. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, uh, he's writing, now, I want you to get this, because he's writing to believers. These are already Christians, and he is confident that they are. So, he's not asking them to come to be reconciled to God with respect to salvation, because they've already been reconciled to God in that case. So what's he talking about here? Well, this is where we come to the end of that chapter, to be complete in holiness. Completing or perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I want you being perfectly reconciled to God. Not just in your initial salvation, but in the holiness of your life. So in these chapters, now Paul is, what he's doing here is he's telling the church, do not trust these false teachers who are criticizing me and trying to wreck me, my person, and my ministry in order to propagate their own doctrine. They professed to have received Paul's gospel because they claimed to be Christians. But they're tolerating the, the false Christians here was putting this profession in, in some jeopardy. It's kind of, I think it's a little bit like when Paul said to the Galatians, I'm standing here in fear of you, that I may have labored in your midst in vain. I don't really, I, I don't really think, because Paul had been assured, I have many people in this city. But their, but their situation now was was really of trouble. It was a problem to Paul. So he's telling them, get away from these Judaizers and start and listen to the to the man of God that he has put into your into your life. He, he he's not worried about them losing their salvation, but rather what he is concerned about is that to because of the influence of these Judaizers, they may have uh, not been everything God wanted them to be. That's the point. So, it's interesting here that Paul goes back to the Old Testament prophets here to who uh, predicted the end of the Old Covenant and, and the coming of Jesus Christ to prove his point. So, in the second verse, we read here from the book of Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah. Uh, chapter forty nine and verse eight. In a favorable in a in a, in a time in a time of favor, 
I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Now, he's really, what the prophet's talking about here is Israel. But he's not really talking about the nation as he is the true Israel, which is Jesus Christ. In a time of favor, grace, see, grace, I have answered you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you as a covenant for the people. Jesus is the covenant that's been given to the people. Now Paul quotes this and he quotes it in, in uh, the face of these false teachers. And what we have here is, this, is a time period, this time of favor, is the gospel age. That's the period from the first coming of Jesus Christ to his second coming. And in this time of favor is also, it's referred to as the day of salvation. The only time that the human race has an opportunity to escape the wrath of God is this day of salvation. There are two days. The first day is the day of salvation. Then the second day is the day of judgment or the Lord's day as it's referred to in Scripture. The day of judgment and the Lord's day. And he's already addressed the Lord's day back in the 5th chapter, the 10th verse, when he said, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he's telling here these Corinthian believers Stop listening to the wrong thing. Start looking at the right thing because this is, this is critical and it's urgent. You don't know when this day will end for you. Because it will end in your death. But right now is the opportune time. Now is the day of salvation. Now, he says, it's the day of salvation. And salvation here means your whole Deliverance of body, soul, and spirit. When you are growing in the grace and knowledge, when you first come into salvation, and you, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. So Paul here pleads the urgency of it. Now is the favorable time. And in the context of the passage, Paul is urging those who have received the gospel to progress in holiness. Now, he doesn't use that term, but he does refer to separation. See, he's arguing now for them to separate themselves from the faults and from what's wrong and to, and to adhere to the truth. So he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. As he quotes there from the old. Uh, and in this, and 17 verse 1, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's, that's what we're to do in this day of salvation. So we're to live out 
our salvation in the light of the day of the Lord. The day is coming when we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And and uh, we read there in uh, when Paul was at, at uh, Athens, and he preached to them there. He said, "God's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead." Jesus is the Savior, but He's also the Judge. And that, that's interesting because Paul uses that terminology of pleading. We're pleading with you. You're going to have to stand before the judge who is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So and then, so then to give them an example, and that's, this is really what I believe Paul's doing here. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. We put no obstacle. I think Paul uses we and not I, because he wants to deflect it from himself. But he's talking about himself. He said, I put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. He said, I'm an open book. You can search me out. Every man of God ought to have the same attitude and every believer in Jesus Christ ought to ought to be able to say the same thing I'm trying I'm living I'm not perfect I stumble but you can look at my you can search my life you can find something wrong I'm the first one will be able to be willing to say oh yeah thank you I'm going to correct that. But what he's doing, he's setting himself up as an example here. And uh, as a servant of God, he had to be transparent, which was something the false teachers could not say. He did not want to hinder the gospel in any way. So he wanted to walk carefully, prudently, and inoffensively before everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And the very nature of the gospel puts those who embrace it, particularly those who preach it, in a grave danger. Their lives will be scrutinized. They're going to be examined carefully for any stumbling. And, and I'll tell you what, the enemy will be very happy to use those occasions to find fault with the gospel and to blaspheme God. They do that today. And they will do that until Jesus comes. Thus, Paul enumerates his passion in three, there's three areas here that he's enumerating his passion in. First of all, in, in great endurance. So if you'll notice in your Bible there in verse number four, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he, so the first one here is by great endurance. Notice the word by. By great endurance. Endurance about what? Well, then he lists a, a number of things. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. 
says, we have all kinds of things that come to us and they're hard to bear. But we endure. See, and I, as I've told you before, in my opinion, this is the bottom line. God can throw a lot of really hard things at a Christian, but the evidence of his being a true Christian is he does not give in to the hardships. He doesn't quit. He stays true. He keeps on keeping on. Paul said, this, this is how you know a real genuine believer. And that's what Jesus said there in Matthew 24. He who endures to the end shall be saved. All of the hardships, all the difficulties... We, we, we look at this, we say, oh man, all these bad things are going to come at the end of the age. I, I hope the rapture takes place and I get out of here or I die before that happens. I don't want to be a part of that. Well, you missed the point. He will enable you. He will give you strength. He will be with you. He will strengthen you and help you. And you will endure to the end. And that will be the, the chief and prime evidence that you really do belong to him. Then he goes to the second thing, which is verse 6. By purity. What is this? Purity here represents the he's acting as a servant of God with good principles. Purity. And then he gives a list of what of these things. Purity, I think, itself means I'm free of anything that I, you might accuse me. And then knowledge, what he knows. Patience. And this word patience is different from endurance. This is a patience which is uh, used in our relationship with other people. When circumstances sometimes are very difficult. People are very difficult. We deal with circumstances with endurance. We deal with people with patience. How do, how do you do that? <laughs> that's, not, that's not easy and that's something the Holy Spirit has to help us with as well. Patience. And notice the next, very next word, kindness. We deal with those people that are hard to deal with, with patience, and we deal with them with kindness. Whoa, that's the hard one. The Holy Spirit. Genuine love. Truthful speech. The power of God. The weapons. We're in a spiritual war. So, we've, so we're going to have weapons. Weapons of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Wow. Then the third. This, the servant of God learns how to control his own self. His behavior. His temper. So this time there's a different word there. Verse 8 through honor, but it's the same, but it means the same thing. By great endurance, by purity, 
and by honor. By honor. And then he gives another list. Honor through honor and dishonor. And in this he's using two things. Honor and dishonor. We're, when we're honored, we know how to receive it correctly. When we're dishonored, we don't rage in, a, in anger. Through slander and praise. We know how to take abuse and we know how to take praise. I don't get, won't get proud in, my pra- in the praise and I won't get uh, hostile in the slander. You see? How I, how I react to things. What my, t- what my temper is. Or we're treated as imposters. You can't treat me that way! On the, but on the other hand, as true. As known and yet well unknown and yet well known. Who in the world is this Paul? Don't you know me? <laughs> as dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor and yet making many rich. I don't have anything but when God is done with me in your life, you will be rich. <laughs> As having nothing, yet possessing everything. See, does that characterize your life? See, that's what Paul's doing here. He's using these things and saying, I, I'm, I'm using myself as an example here of what a Christian needs to be. He needs to be someone who can endure patiently all of the afflictions and trials and the difficulties that come to him. A Christian needs to be one who is able to operate on good principles, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the things the Holy Spirit produces in us, see? Genuine love, the fruit of the Spirit, truthful speech, I tell the truth, I don't lie. Well, this is one of the great problems in our age. It's very hard to believe people. They lie to you constantly. Our government, for example, is nothing but lies. One lie after another. We're, We're to be people of the truth, see? The power of God operating in you, not not your own strength, and so on. And then the third here is, how's your temper? How do you control your temper? And that, you know, that's a hard one. (laughs) That's hard for, for, particularly for me. So Paul here then concludes with an urgent plea to the to the Corinthians. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart, that is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, and appetites, the affections, the purposes, and the endeavors of the person. We talk about the person's heart. It's not what beats in your chest here. It's your, it's your, person, it's your person. What makes you a person? He said, we're wide open to you. We're an open book. 
you're not restricted by us. But rather, in your own affections. You're restricted in your own affections. And this literally is bowels. Your bowels. Because the Greeks, they saw the heart as the center of the personality. They saw the bowels as the center of their emotions. The seed of tender affections, especially kindness, benevolence, and compassion. So there's where you're, 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 you're hindered by your own, your own selves. So in return, I speak to you as a father speaking to his children. Widen your hearts. Now that brings us then to, to the next point here, which is the duty of believers on the day of salvation. I'm going to be brief in this area. And that's where he starts in the 14th verse. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he's speaking to them as a father speaking to children. So then what does he do? Here is a very strong admonition. Stop being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> okay, Paul. That's really how I think it should be translated. It's a do not be. It's stop. They're being unequally yoked together with these Judaizers. Stop. And then he asks a series of questions. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is an old, it's a Hebrew term that's translated here into the Greek, just taken into the Greek with the Hebrew uh, pronunciation, but Belial or Belial. Uh, meant someone who was worthless, who was, this was the, the sum of wickedness to call somebody a person a belial. And it's really a reference to the devil here. Christ and Antichrist. What is, what's worthless? It's Antichrist. Here's Christ, the sent one from God, and Belial over here, who is the Antichrist, Satan himself. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Oh, we this is so difficult. We want to be friends with those in the world, but we can't share with them. We cannot share with them. Or then he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, false gods? What, what, what's the one great thing? He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the temple and flee. <laughs> and that was 70 AD. You can't. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes put an idol in the temple in Jerusalem, which was the abomination of abominations. And that's what Paul is referring to here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then, notice, whoa! Why, what's, this, what's the reason for this strong command? You! 
We, not you, we, we are the temple of the living God. Now, he's talking to Judaizers. The, the temple has not been destroyed in Jerusalem yet in 70 AD, but he's telling them, stop looking to a building in Jerusalem. You are the temple of the living God. Wow. He addressed it earlier in the first book, but he addressed it as individuals. Here he's addressing it as the church. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And I think maybe this one does have reference to, to the church. Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. You destroy it by being unholy. But in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it here does, I believe, refer to the believer, individual believer's body as being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is within you, which you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And in your spirit, which are God's. So here again, Paul then goes back to the Old Testament from Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, and then Isaiah 52, and verse 11. I will make you, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's Leviticus. And then he goes into Isaiah. So go out from the midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch, don't touch an unclean thing. See, that was a big thing in the Old Testament. You touched a dead body, you were unclean. Don't go to the temple and worship, you're unclean. Don't go there. Until you are clean. Only clean people, only clean animals could be in the temple. And that's what he's referring to here. Touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Whoa. What a promise. But that promise requires a duty. Don't touch the unclean thing. So then he, he gives the, then the duty to the church there in the last. But, I, but here's the ultimate. I want to back up just a second here. And this is the ultimate. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe Away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. See, that's the ultimate desire. God says, the church right now is my temple, but the day is coming when the church will be with me in the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be no temple building not even any body like us but we will 
God will be dwelling with us like he wanted to in the Garden of Eden. Wouldn't that be something? Think about that. So then what is the duty that's given to the church? And I close with this. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. These are promises, not threats. God doesn't say, if you don't do this thing, I'm going to... No, it's not a threat. It's a promise that should motivate us and provoke us to compliance. And Paul gives us clear information on how that's possible in the, in the book of Romans. In, the, the, in chapter 7, verses 18, 19, and 24, Paul said, I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not for I do not the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want to keep on doing. So then he asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes into the 8th chapter and he explains how that's possible. Paul's not going to, and God is not going to ask you to do something he hasn't given you <clears throat> the ability to do. So what we read, who will deliver you? Uh, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he proceeds here to explain the good news. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk see here's my duty walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not subject to God's it is not subject to God's law, indeed cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what's the bottom line? Let's bring to completion holiness in the fear of God. Father, thanks for the word. Thanks, Lord, for Paul and his clear presentation of these great truths here in the chapter we've, we've examined this morning. And Lord, may these truths be applied to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.